right? You'd have to be looking at a business plan where it makes sense and you can get a lot of bang for your buck. So at a minimum, you know, the worst case scenario, every dollar you put in in capital expenditures would get you a dollar increase in valuation. Typically, this is, you know, not what we're looking for. We're looking for a, a one to three benefit or, or, you know, or even more. Welcome to Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals. Today, our guest is Rob Beardsley. Rob has acquired over $40 million of value-add multifamily real estate, and he is the founder and principal of Lone Star Capital Group, a New York City-based private equity firm. He underwrites and buys deals in the Houston area, and this is a great conversation about debt on multifamily. We haven't talked about multifamily loans yet, and this is important for sponsors and passive investors to understand. I mean, the sponsors have to know it up and down. Passive investors, as you'll see throughout the discussion, don't take on as much risk as the sponsors do, and, and we'll get into why that is. But it's still good to know so that you understand the plan and you can evaluate the deals that you're looking at more thoroughly and really vet whether the sponsor's plan fits what you believe to be true about a particular deal in the area, what you think is going to happen in the future, and uh, whether or not the, the team works together and everything. So it's a fun discussion. Uh, a lot of really uh, this is information dense. So pull out a, if you're sitting somewhere, you're not driving, pull out a pad of paper and a pen and uh, start writing some stuff down because we're really going to go through a lot of dense information that might you might have to go back and re-listen. So thanks again for tuning in. And without further ado, here's the interview. Rob from Lone Star Capital, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So I'm excited to talk about the debt aspect of investing in multifamily real estate. And you know, this is important for active and passive investors alike. So, you know, can you explain to us, uh, you know, from a high level, what's available out there for multifamily investors from the debt side of things? Absolutely. So there's a whole ton of liquidity in the debt market for multifamily real estate because it's a uh, historically and lately well-performing asset class. So, uh, you know, many lenders are in the business and interested in putting out capital, but primarily the most uh, competitive and best terms are available through uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And these are normally called agency loans and people are typically using these loans uh, for more longer term financing like 10-year papers what is is most commonly seen for uh, debt terms for multifamily syndications and multifamily acquisitions in general and uh, interestingly enough also uh, the agencies Fannie Mae Freddie Mac they also push borrowers uh, into what seems to be longer maturity or at least 10 years uh, of term. So they, they prefer to see their borrowers take uh, longer term debt rather than their five year and seven years. So you'll see their pricing, it'll, even though typically on a, on a standard yield curve, 
the more term you take on, the more expensive the debt becomes. However, for them, you'll often see that five-year debt could be actually more expensive. So they're pricing themselves out of that uh, duration and really looking for, really pushing borrowers to take on uh, 10-year debt with yield maintenance. And I think that is another uh, interesting point that we could talk about next, which are prepayments and for uh, agency loans. Yeah. So, I mean, why is that? Why would they be pushing borrowers into uh, longer term loans? Right. The two, the two term combination is they want 10 year, they want to put out 10 year money with yield maintenance prepayment clauses. And what that really does is it locks in that debt for at least six years, maybe seven years. Uh, because yield maintenance is, is a calculated prepayment penalty that is very steep and it, it'll be very unlikely that a borrower will be interested in uh, prepaying the loan early uh, within, like I said, first six or seven years. So I think their goal there is they, they want to put out debt capital and, and not have it quickly return to them, uh, know that it's going to be out and it's going to be earning that fixed rate of return you know, just as they push borrowers into their uh, longer duration debt, they also push borrowers into fixed rate debt rather than floating. So if you ask, if you ask Fannie Mae for a, a fixed rate loan, they'll say, depending on the market and depending on the, the you know, quality of the sponsored asset, you could get, let's say, 80% leverage, uh, which is great. And you'll get a couple years of interest only. However, if you want floating rate debt, which would float over LIBOR, uh, which is how most typical floating rate paper works, which is a LIBOR plus uh, a spread rate, they understand that now you're taking on interest rate risk, uh, which is out of their control, out of your control, the borrower, and you may only be able to get 65 or 70% leverage. So they're going to heavily curtail leverage if you're taking on uh, floating rate debt. And, you know, personally, I don't think floating rate debt is it necessarily any worse than fixed. And there's uh, lots of research out there showing that in the long term, letting yourself float, you know, with ebbs and flows going up and down on your floating rate is actually in the end uh, saving you money than locking in fixed rate debt all the time. So, but in any event, they are pushing for fixed rate, interest rate loans, 10-year debt, and yield maintenance. And that's really kind of the safest place for a borrower to be. So, I mean, there are a lot of terms in here that you've dropped and a lot of uh, things that we've gone over that I think it's important to go back and talk about and define and, you know, going all the way back to the beginning, more or less, uh, the term of the loan versus the amortization. I mean, you're, you're talking about the, the term of the loan, uh, but you haven't mentioned the, the amortization. So can you talk about the differences between the two and then what you're seeing out there uh, in, in terms of what uh, lenders are looking for and, and where kind of the best deals, so to speak, is? Right. Yeah, good point. So uh, most commercial real estate loans have a shorter duration than the amortization. So in a, it, on, on the other hand, if you were to take on a fully amortizing loan for 
let's say 15 years, like a personal mortgage, the payments would, uh, you'd be paying interest in principal uh, and, and in a way that after the 15 years of the loan, you would now have paid off the loan and there would be no balloon payment, um, leaving the asset free and clear. Uh, this almost never happens <clears throat> in multifamily or commercial real estate where let's say you have a 10 year loan on a 30 year amortizing schedule. Uh, and you know, typically you're going to get a couple years of, let's say one to three years of interest only, uh, payments for the, for the first three years. So you'll begin amortizing on the 30 year schedule, three years into the loan, you'll have seven years of paying down the loan on that 30 year schedule. And then when the duration of the loan is up in 10 years, you'll have a balloon payment, uh, which won't be materially lower than the, uh, the original loan balance. So, I mean, you mentioned interest only there. So you're, you're just paying the interest on the loan for a couple of years. What are the upsides and maybe the downsides to interest only loans? I mean, it, it sounds almost too good to be true, right? Yeah, I think the goal, if, if you could uh, pick your just, if you could Mr. Potato Head your debt, you just always pay interest only and you never have to deal with amortization. Um, <laughs> and this is because, you know, there's a school of thought that you would like to have, uh, you know, pay down your principal and the faster the better, right? So the 15 year mortgage is better than the 30 year mortgage. Um, but this really, it doesn't, take a deeper look at opportunity costs and uh, discount rates. So for example, for a, an agency loan that let's say is, I mean, right now rates are really low. So using a, an example of 4% is not unrealistic. So 4% loan uh, that is amortizing on a 30 year schedule, uh, that cheap of money, I mean, debt is always cheap relative to equity, but even right now, I mean, right now, especially it's, it's such a painful idea to think paying down a loan that's at 4% is a good idea because, well, what, I'm, what I mean is it's really not a good idea because you can achieve a higher rate of return in almost any uh, risk asset, right? Stocks, bonds, real estate, uh, but real estate especially, uh, more than 4%. So if my debt is costing me 4%, I would like to only pay interest on it uh, and never have to pay down because essentially what you're doing when you pay down principal is you're earning that you're building up equity, which a lot of people talk as a selling point of paying down principal, but you're essentially earning yourself a 4% return on the principal that you paid down. So I never in my life would like to earn 4% and uh, <laughs> would much rather be a borrower and uh, keep going on the interest only train. So with that in mind, there are ways to structure your debt to really uh, stay on interest only and get the max leverage from the agency. So this would be something like you could take on a, a more expensive. Uh, so a lot of lenders will put side by side quotes of, okay, here's your 10 year debt with yield maintenance. And here's your 10 year debt with a step down and the step down on a 10 year schedule would be the first two years would be 5% exit fee, which, you know, paying 5% of the loan balance could be a huge number and obviously uh, prohibitively expensive. So you would go the first five years or the first two years at 5%, then the next two at four, and then the next two at three, and then you end up at one, one, and, 
and then you're uh, and you can prepay at par with no penalty out in the last I believe six months. Um, oh no, you have to pay one percent. So the step down, you have to pay one percent out even then. But the, my point is, is you, if you can get let's say ten year debt with uh, four years of interest only, then you let the four years run out of interest only payments, and then you refinance and you pay the uh, what would that be a five four, three. So then you pay 3% out and put on a fresh four years of interest only again. And so uh, that's one way. I mean, that's a bit costly because obviously paying 3% on the loan is still expensive. So it has to make sense by, based on how much additional proceeds you're able to get if you're adding more value and, and the NOI is increasing. But uh, and then there are other ways to structure it. So that's that's my take on the interest only. Hmm. So if you're, what's the risk there? I mean, if you're not making, or if the investment's not making the, say, projected rent increases or, you know, not performing quite as well as expected, then that's going to be more difficult to to do that refinance strategy, right? Um, or, or am I way off base there? No, yeah. I mean, people definitely look... Uh, at refining as you know banking on it is not prudent and i agree and i think the the difference in this scenario is that you still have your 10-year debt term and therefore if your interest only runs out and you and the market's not there for you you're in a, you're in a deep recession or your um your property's noi has gone down and now you can no longer support um you know, a, a full proceeds refi, then you have the option to hold your debt for an additional six years and you should be able to weather that economic storm if you were prudently leveraged from the beginning. And I think that's the point a lot of people make is, well, I'm paying down my loan and therefore I'm reducing my risk as, as I, you know, go further along to the business plan and the longer I hold the asset. And I would say, you're held, your leverage point is held to a debt service coverage ratio constraint uh, from the beginning of the loan. So based on the full balance. And this debt service coverage ratio is calculated based on the principal and interest payment. So amortizing payment uh, from the beginning. So whether or not you're taking on any interest only payments, you'll be constrained to a uh, principal plus interest payment. And basically if you're depending on the market, depending on the asset, if your income cannot support 125% of a fully, uh, of a principal and interest payment, then, uh, you know, you won't be able to get the loan you think you can. So they'll cut your leverage down to a point where you're able to have 125% uh, of income to, to debt service ratio. So I think, the point is that you want to be prudently leveraged from the beginning and not bank on paying down principal along the way to reduce your risk and uh, get to a place where you want to be. And obviously, you know, we're in the business to add value and buy deals and, and create big increases in uh, income and, and valuation. So for us, if we're taking on a 10 year term loan, uh, you know, in reality, if we succeed in our business plan two to three years down the road, that 75% leveraged loan is going to really be 60%, you 
you know, if we do a good job, 55% leverage. So we want to take as much leverage up front, um, knowing that we're still going to be constrained to that 1.25 debt service coverage ratio, uh, which means you'd have to see a, from, from the beginning, uh, even though you're going to increase income from the beginning, you'd have to experience a 20% decline in, uh, NOI in order to be cash flow break even. And that would be, <laughs> that would be an enormous, uh, hit to your property if you take that big of a, a cash flow, uh, reduction. So, you know, want to avoid that particular. Right. Scenario. That's not an everyday occurrence. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. Great. Um, so you mentioned, uh, you mentioned leverage percentage. Uh, I think it'd be just good to address that in terms of, you know, 65% LTV, 80% LTV. What does that mean? Yeah. So I think the, a lot of these numbers, unfortunately, can be manipulated. So, uh, you, you know, taking something at face value is risky. And, you know, to the passive investors that are in the favorable or, you know, envious position to be able to sit back and put their money to work and uh, let other people, uh, you know, create value with it and things like that, you need to still be hands on at the beginning to obviously. Uh, like we spoke before, we recorded, you know, vetting the deal, the market, the sponsor, and certainly um, these are some of the key aspects of vetting a deal specifically are, you know, the numbers side of it, which like we're going to talk about now, the, the leverage point. So the, the loan to value or LTV is uh, typically related, or, which is the debt amount divided by purchase price. And I think this is a good metric to to look at, and it's pretty standard. But then you should go a step further and look at what is the loan to cost, and also what is the loan to value based on uh, pro forma valuation. So let's say a year or two into the business plan, and you know based on your predetermined assumptions, what is the loan to value then? But so loan to cost, the difference between loan to cost and loan to value is a uh, loan to cost lumps in additional costs uh, into that uh, denominator, which would normally just be the purchase price. But now you're, let's say you're having a uh, interior and exterior renovation budget. You could lump that into your cost there. So it'd be your debt divided by purchase price plus your cost to renovate. So that is to me a much better indication of leverage because, you know, typically you're getting a, in order to, actually want to spend money on renovations, right? You'd have to be looking at a business plan where it makes sense and you can get a lot of bang for your buck. So at a minimum, you know, the worst case scenario, every dollar you put in in capital expenditures would get you a dollar increase in valuation. Typically this is, you know, not what we're looking for. We're looking for a, a one to three benefit or, or, you know, or even more. But if you're only getting a one to one increase in value, that is a better representation of, of your leverage point because if you have a 75% uh, loan to value loan, but it to cost, it's only 70%. You know, that means in the near term, as you're implementing your business plan, you should be leveraged at 70%. For those out there who have bought their own home and everything like that, or done some investing in the past, 
you're probably, they're probably familiar with closing costs and the costs of getting your debt. And in this commercial world, the numbers are bigger. So we expect bigger closing costs. So what do your closing costs and like costs of financing look like in these types of deals? Yeah. So it's pretty standard for lenders to charge a 1% origination fee. That'll be your single biggest expense. So if, let's use a $10 million loan as, a, as an example here. Um, you know, you can expect to pay that 1% origination fee. So there's a hundred thousand uh, dollars. The next thing also would be uh, the lenders. So when you actually sign a commitment letter and you're ready to begin the process with the lender, you'll wire anywhere from 30,000 to $75,000 to the lender as a good faith deposit. And they're going to now begin the process with this money to, one, they're gonna charge their underwriting fee, which is just basically, you know, more fees to them on top of their 1% uh, financing fee. And then you're going to pay for their legal bill, which for a $10 million loan, and, and really it's, it doesn't change much. Um, it changes a little bit depending on the type of loan between let's say an agency loan or a bridge loan. Uh, so, but you know, let's call that legal $25,000. And then you'll also be paying for their third party reports. So there are, and all these deals, if you're, if you're getting a loan, you'll typically have a lender mandated third party reports, which are an appraisal, a phase one environmental report and a PCR, which is a property condition report. So that those three reports typically cost $25,000 in total. So already we're here at $160,000. So those are typically, and then on your side, you're going to have borrower legal. Um, and that could be another, depending on the type of loan, it could be 15 to $25,000. So just there on the, on the loan side of things, your closing costs are on a $10 million loan. Uh, nearly 2%. And then uh, on top of it, if you are using an intermediary to access the debt markets, uh, you could expect to pay a half a percent to a percent uh, in additional uh, broker fee on top of it. So now you could be looking at 3%. Wow. So the, the numbers are much bigger than uh, when you buy your own home, but uh, I guess that's uh, not too surprising. So what is the most, as you're, you've gotten deeper and deeper into this world of multifamily investing, what is the most surprising thing that you've learned from a debt aspect? Something that just came out of nowhere and you're like, oh, well, that's good to know. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think, you know, I learned this very early on. And I think it's a really strong lesson uh, and, you, and you hear people talk about it, but until it hits you right in the face, it's hard to really heed the comments fully. Uh, but that is you really need to uh, have trust in your lender and because there's so much trust that you end up having to do because there's a lot of time in between when you pick a lender and sign that engagement lender letter or, or, or a letter of intent to closing, right? That could be two months, could be three months and a lot can happen and a lot can change. And 
<clears throat> all the all that during that time, the lender is going to be performing due diligence and, uh, and underwriting the property and, and and collecting personal financial information. And uh, you know, there's pretty much nothing stopping a lender during that process. After you're very deep in your your money is uh, non-refundable in escrow with the seller, and uh, at any point, the lender could say, oh, that $10 million loan we talked about, well, we actually think it's only going to be nine. So you need another million dollars of equity. Sorry. Uh, oh, so, you know, that's never a fun situation. And that's why people call that example a very ugly word, you know, retrading, right? Nobody wants to hear that word. Nobody wants to talk about it. So, you know, and, and how do you protect yourself, right? You want to, you know about this and so you want to be smart up front and uh, there's really no way to protect yourself. I think the way to protect yourself is through relationships and trust. So it's uh, that's been a, a really interesting dynamic to learn about. Hmm. Yeah, that doesn't sound like a, a fun situation. So uh, I don't know, I guess we'll uh, work on our lender relationships and hopefully we can avoid that situation and they can uh, help us see that coming and, and help us stay away from having to, uh, I don't know, in, invoke the R word retrading because that, uh, <laughs> that can really mess up your relationship with uh, your broker and uh, potentially just completely ruin the deal. So, well, I was just going to, to add to that, the, the retrading, you know, number one, it's, a risk really not borne by passive investors, um, right? It's it's really truly all on the sponsor. So if the sponsor has a deal lined up, they put it under contract, and they are operating under the assumption that they're going to get a $10 million loan, as we discussed, and they're pitching the deal that way, and investors say, oh, yes, this deal looks good, uh, everything checks out. And then the lender comes back and says, yeah, well, we can't get to that number. It's going to be $9 million. You know, that could change up the deal completely and, and really make it from a deal that looked pretty good to, you know, a, lot of, a deal that a lot of investors wouldn't be interested in. So, and, and while it's, a, it's unfortunate, a passive investor, an LP at that point could simply, you know, not commit to the deal. Or if they were already committed, they could back out. So that is a... Definitely one benefit of being on the passive side. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a very good point in that um, that's a little bit deeper that at least up front in the very beginning of, uh, you know, till the deal comes to the table and everything, um, as passive investors, we don't have any risk in any of these deals unless we're specifically looking for, looking to be that risk capital uh, as passive investors, we don't have this risk of really any of these things that the sponsor takes on. They have to put down, you know, an earnest money deposit uh, with the seller. That's on the sponsor to do themselves or, or find an investor that's specifically interested in being that risk capital person. You know, uh, passive investors out there don't need to worry about a lot of these things. It's good to know, but a lot of these problems up front are problems for the sponsor to worry about and, and not for the passive investor to worry about. Yep, absolutely. So we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. 
All right, Rob. So uh, we got three questions I ask every guest here at the end of the show. Are you ready? I am. First one. First one. What is the best investment in real estate that you've made? In in relationships. Can you go a little bit deeper into that? What is there a specific relationship that comes to mind? There are certainly a couple, but I think in general, it's the mentality of seeking relationships and and building, you know, that that strong network of people that you can count on, right? The lenders that will provide honest feedback and not retrade, and you know, investors that believe in you and believe in your deals and uh, brokers. So I think, you know, everywhere you turn in the business, there's a, a pivotal relationship and, you know, building up strong ones uh, in, in all those aspects is super important. And I think that's, uh, you know, that's what's going to carry you through a career in real estate rather than, you know, trying to find uh, that perfect deal. Mm, yeah. You uh, look at it in, in the long term view or you have a long-term view about it. Great. On the other side of that, what is the worst investment that you've made in real estate so far? <laughs> uh, this is so funny. It's uh, it's the classic buying a out-of-state single-family home. What happened? Uh, I mean, luckily, nothing too bad, but basically learned my lesson quickly uh, that you, know, you can't just you know, think think you know it all and, and think that if the price is low, it's a good deal. Um, so what happened is uh, we bought a single family home out of state and, you know, thinking that there, there was already a tenant in there and, and we'd be collecting checks, clipping a coupon. Uh, but it, you know, quickly after we bought it, um, tenant was paying rent. We had to evict and, uh, you know, then we had a single family home sitting vacant and, you know, and not only that, it was trashed by the previous tenant. And then we had to go through that trouble to uh, fix it up and then put it on the market. And then it was sitting on the market. And so I uh, ended up finally selling and taking a loss. But that is just, in my opinion, very uh, a, a good example of why single family homes are just a, a really a terrible passive investment because you're relying on that one stream of income. And, it, you know, if there is a headache, which there always are, it ends up being a massive one because it's, you know, it's the whole business plan. So I think, you know, it's just far less work and far better to not have to rely on one tenant in your single family home. Mm, so in hindsight, you know, if, um, assuming that, uh, I don't know, in hindsight, like what could you have done? on the front end or like, what's like the, one of the biggest mistakes that you made in picking that deal and not the others, assuming you know, you're still looking at other than the fact that it's a single family, you know, was it, did, did you go look at the property? And you said it was out of state. Uh, did you look at it before you bought it? Did you send somebody to look at it? Um, did you audit the lease? What, what'd you do? Right. We did very little due diligence. Um, you know, it wasn't a big investment. So that was the biggest mistake. Like you said, we didn't visit the property. We didn't think about any of those things. And so it was, um, you know, thankfully not an extremely painful lesson financially, but it was a very strong lesson uh, very early on that you can never do 
uh, and not due diligence. Mm, good to know. Good to know. So the last question here that I ask every guest at the end of the show is my favorite one. What is the most important lesson that you've learned in real estate investing? <laughs> yeah, that's such a tough question. Such a tough one, but uh, it would, it would probably be that one: due diligence, due diligence, due diligence. Or the number one rule is you make money on the buy, and I think that's a really good one. So as you've gotten into, you know, or you know, now you're fully into multifamily, uh, moving out of that that single family world, not investing in single families anymore. What's probably the biggest one or two key differences between single family and multifamily due diligence that sticks out in your mind? Well, you know, the, the, the great thing about multifamily is it's a team sport. So you don't have to rely on all the due diligence coming from your end. So we're fortunate to be, to be able to have, you know, property management company on our team and uh, they can, with us deploy their resources to be on site for you know now obviously for uh, for all our due diligence we fly out to the property we spend a lot of time there we spend a lot of time in the market and uh you know our property management company can deploy their due diligence team and we can uh, do programmatic unit walks so if we have a 200 unit property we can actually in a day or two um, walk every single unit and assess the condition of the critical components in the interiors. Uh, similarly, we can walk the exteriors with general contractors. We have relationships with general contractors that are honest with us and competitive with their bids and uh, make understanding the scope of a construction, the construction aspect of these projects far less uh, ominous and, and, and wide ranging in pricing and, and risk. And, you know, and then we're also able to uh, perform lease file audits so we're we're looking at the rent roll and comparing the leases and seeing the you know identifying all the discrepancies. So those are you know that right there makes you a lot more comfortable on the due diligence side, and you're not left to your own devices like on single family. So I think you know yes, it's a bigger beast, it's a bigger project, but there's just more team players to help you. And then your lender, like we mentioned earlier, is ordering those third party reports, and you know it. it if your lender weren't, you should do them yourself. But because they're forced upon you, it's it's really a, another great benefit. So, you know, the lender is playing with more money than you. There, if, if it's a let's just say eighty percent leverage, right? They're putting up eighty percent of the capital for the deal, and you're only putting up twenty. So they have a lot more money at risk, and so to that end, they're going to do a lot more due diligence. So uh, it's kind of a good feeling that when a deal checks out by your lender, I mean, obviously that doesn't mean it's a great deal, but it just further helps that there aren't any glaring issues uh, that at least hopefully if there are, that the lender is making you aware of them. Mm. Good to know. All good to know. And yeah, this, the scale helps a lot uh, in, in multifamily. And I can see what you said about uh, scale helping from a due diligence aspect that you've got, more team players. I think you put it well. You've got more people involved and more people uh, working on the task of evaluating your property. So that uh, that makes a lot of sense. So thanks for everything today. I, I'm really happy to finally get a chance to talk about debt on multifamily real estate. We just haven't gone over that topic yet here. So if folks want to learn more about the deals that you're doing, 
where can they reach you, uh, contact information, website, all that good stuff? Sure. Your listeners can head over to lonestarcapgroup.com or email me at rob at lonestarcapgroup.com. We're putting deals together primarily in Houston. More than that, I, I do a lot of thinking and writing on some deeper topics in multifamily and, and real estate in general. So if, uh, if anyone's interested in those things, um, feel free to get involved in, in what we're doing. Awesome. All right, Rob. Well, thank you for joining us today. Uh, once again, a great discussion. Everyone should certainly reach out to you and hear about uh, what you have going on in Houston. That's a, a very interesting market. And there, I think there's a lot of opportunity there uh, for the right buyers looking in the right parts of Houston. So yeah, once again, very much appreciated. And thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It was great. It's my pleasure. To everybody out there, for tu- thank you for tuning in. Uh, th- and thank you for listening today. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It's a very big help. Much appreciated. And if you know someone that could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please invite them to the show or, or share the show with them and invite them into our little group here that we've got forming. Thank you for tuning in once again. I hope you have a great rest of your day, a great rest of your week, and we will talk to you on the next one. Goodbye.